Yo, Mo. What's up? Did you know that, I mean, depending on what data you're looking at, that either a quarter or a third of all startups that become unicorns are fintechs? Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. This Damn. is fairly recent. I think this is like data from like the last, uh, what was it? 2020, 2021. That's that sounds insane. like a massive industry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm both surprised and not surprised because I've seen like people with an idea and like some sketches on a napkin raise three million, but at the same time, yeah, the fact that there are tons of unicorns is kind of surprising. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing: like, what is a fintech, right? So there's a, a, a lot of subdisciplines under the term fintech. That's really a catch-all term. Mm -hmm. I think I like to think of it as as uh, two different. Uh, or actually three different buckets. One is data. So fintechs that deal mm -hmm. with, you know, the data and the software that ties everything together, right? Right. I think there's the fintech that asks you for money, like a neobank, where you got to give them your money in the form of a deposit or you're investing yeah. uh, through them, like as, an, as a robo-advisor or a number of other buckets. And then right. there's number three, which is the fintechs want to give you money. So those are the ones hmm. that give you loans. Mainly loans. So, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't have the breakdown in terms of the uh, unicorn fintechs and how many happen to fall into each of those buckets. But yeah. you and I have spoken extensively offline mm -hmm. about how we, um, you know, we, you know, you and I have both looked at a couple deals in the third bucket, the ones that dish out loans, and kind of figured, hmm. Something's a little fishy with the incentive alignment here. And ultimately, I wonder whether this business model is even viable at rates higher than zero. Indeed, indeed. It, it felt like our um, inner Michael Burry was sort of coming out. It was like, the numbers, the numbers don't add up here. Yeah, yeah. Goldman Sachs, create an instrument for me to short it. <laughs> Not exactly. 200 million, please. Yeah, yeah, that's all. Just 200. I'll sprinkle on top, too. Just that. That's fine, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I thought I wanted to get in touch with uh, a friend of mine in Silicon Valley uh, who happens to be fairly well versed in fintech. He kind of does fintech first and foremost for the fund he's working at. Uh, he's a man by the name of uh, John Franco Felice of Ovo Fund. Uh, I asked him to join and he agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The name is uh, straight up like out of a romance novel paperback that you buy you know kind of at the airport when you're bored and there's nothing else <laughs> oh yeah I, I told him that i told him that he agrees but uh yeah, yeah. yeah so i thought it would be good to hear his opinion about what's going on in the valley and the u.s at large maybe a little bit of what's going on internationally um i'm super intrigued by fintech like you know full disclosure my own fund looks at fintech extensively mm -hmm. um we have the pleasure of seeing everything from everywhere so it's um it's really blowing up and um, it's easy to make these decisions when rates are zero and everything's, you know, hunky dory, but right. uh, it's good to hear from people who aren't, uh, you know, all puppies and sunshine all the time and maybe have a bit more of a realistic outlook on things. People who talk to me think I'm a pessimist all the time, but oh, uh, I like to think I'm more of a realist. That is true. I think, I think the, both of our habits to just immediately look at pitfalls when a new plan is presented is definitely, you know, it's, it is, it is, it is somewhat of a realistic attitude towards 
towards stuff. Yeah, it's a useful trait as an investor, I'd argue. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, John Franco is about to join us. Um, can't wait to hear his take. Share it with all you guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go for it. All right. What up? What up? Hey, Mo. Howdy are you there. Hello. Awesome. Thank you. Doing this like yeah, yeah. three-way uh, uh, recording thing never works out as smoothly. Like it's just so much easier when people are sitting in the same room. But uh, oh, that's so true. Yeah. Also, ten time zones doesn't help, but whatever. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mo, you know that recently I've been I've been doing this uh, uh, on deck angels thing, ODA, which is like YC for investors, kind of, sorta. Yeah. And. Uh, end up getting uh, a chance to meet a lot of really cool people in a lot of really cool places doing a lot of really cool things. And everyone has their kind of, um, their area of expertise. And I figured it would be kind of fun just to start bringing people out of ODA onto the podcast chat and kind of give everyone a peek into how that kind of works. So we got John Franco on the line today. I hope. Is he there? Yep. He is. He's him. Pleasure to be here. Hello, What up, man? How you doing? Oh, living the dream. Or Adrian just kind of depends on uh, what news cycle I'm watching these days. What news cycle oh, are you watching these days? Don't say anything gets us canceled. <laughs> okay, if it's OAN, I can skip. But what's what? What news cycle are you on? <laughs> a lot of a lot of Wall Street Journal. Just just the newsletters. I won't nice. even click the links. I'm, I'm all about the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder they're going broke. <laughs> I mean, hey, that, that's that's honestly better than just like doom scrolling on twitter right i i, I kind of miss traditional publications yeah so okay i've been in oda for what like a couple weeks now what two weeks is it john i don't know yeah but two or three weeks <laughs> something like that and and uh man I, we've gotten just so much insane deal flow from everywhere and i kind of went into it hoping that i would get a little more on the fintech side just because i had kind of been a little biased just given who i'd met who had came out of oda before in prior cohorts and uh, lo and behold, I meet John Franco, who is, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to steal your spotlight. Why don't you tell us where you came from, where you wound up, and how you wound up in ODA? Sure thing. So um, I, uh, I'm from Gilroy. So it's the uh, garlic capital of the world, if you guys are at all familiar. Oh, I actually had, and, I, I, I went there back in August, and I had the garlic ice cream. Oh, no kidding. So, good. so yeah, I take it your yeah. car broke down, and that was the closest pretty much food. yeah but but the 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 persian in me was uh was flourishing it was just blooming so <laughs> can't can't complain i hear it's spicy and i feel like that's like really in line with uh it was it was a mix of spicy but we had garlic chips beforehand and we put it as topping on top of the ice cream so just peak peak persian but but it was yeah it was i want to say that's, recommend. that's sacrilegious but you know we'll let it slide because <laughs> you're a tourist oh yeah, um, yeah thank you so Grew up no in wonder Gilroy. you're single. <laughs> uh, my, fa my father's from Italy and my mother's from El Salvador. And um, they met taking English classes um, at a local community college there. So grew up there. Um, then um, made the uh, stones throw over to Stanford for undergrad, where I majored in, um, in economics. And that's kind of where my love for, for fintech kind of evolved. And so one of my first jobs was working at Visa. And then subsequently I was working with uh, 
McKinsey in their financial institutions practice in San Francisco. And then I was a product manager at Goldman Sachs um, on the Clarity Money team. And after all those experiences, kind of realized that, you know, if I want to be a financier or whatever that means, uh, probably need to get some institutional investing under my belt. So I joined this, uh, this upstart growth equity firm called Realization Capital Partners. It was a debut fund, $105 million. And um, it was just myself and two partners, and they're both like 55 years old. And being a new grad, from a cultural perspective, probably not the, uh, the best place to start a career. And also COVID had just hit. So instead of going into the office, you're doing everything online, which was tough. So after about eight months of that, I uh, clawed my way um, into an investment banking role at Barclays in their Menlo Park office. It took about three months for me to get tapped on the shoulder um, with this firm called OVO, which is an institutional pre-seed firm based in Palo Alto. And I'd done some work for them while at Stanford, and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want to come work with us and lead all things related to fintech payments and decentralized finance web three? And I was like, this beats working on a deck until 10 p.m. on a Friday. So absolutely. (laughs) And so that's kind of how I how I got there. And I realized that, you know, ODA probably might provide a little bit more structure and framework to how to get up to speed in angel investing, since that's kind of our bread and butter for the firm. And uh, so here we are. Sweet. So you weren't at IB long enough to be properly traumatized, need a therapist, that kind of thing. No, I got my three months in and then left. I burned a lot of bridges, but uh, <laughs> all, for, all for the better, all for the better. <laughs> Awesome. So, I mean, you you have a soft spot for fintech. I have a soft spot for fintech. I mean, when we first kind of vibed, we were talking about um, kind of the, the the most recent evolution of fintech and how it's kind of a worked itself into everything because the of the APIification you can say of the entire industry, and and b some of the what we perceive to be adverse selection um, with respect to the industry and how it's going. I mean. I kind of want to start on the second one because it's a little more explosive and generates a bit more opinions. This is a podcast after after all. But so for me, what I had seen when I was looking at a lot of fintech players, I mean, just as a function of rates having been so low, thank you, Uncle J. Powell, um, for so long, um, kind of getting a sponsor bank to really back almost really any debt finance initiative you can think of in a startup setting has become relatively easy. Um. Now, we're not going to name specific apps for obvious reasons, but I had begun to see a trend where a lot of the easy money um, and a lot of the services that try to convince you to, to, to finance something that otherwise would not have been financed with any kind of debt structure in the past, more sophisticated than, say, a credit card, were targeting people who otherwise may not have even qualified for said credit card. Um, John, I wanted to hear your opinion on how that's really developed in in terms of the deal flow that you've seen while at OVO and elsewhere. Yeah, sure thing. And I think you're, you're right on point on this, this whole idea of adverse selection when you start to kind of climb closer and closer towards subprime credit scores or even, you know, these thin file customers, it creates and breeds, you know, a lot less uh, foundation for the company. And so some of the things that we're seeing is that, those on the farther end of the spectrum who are kind of on the fringes of financial services, you tend to be able to 
extract a lot more value from them in the sense that because they're less financially sophisticated, because they perhaps may not understand the impact of interest rates. For example, they see that, oh, you know, for take, for example, when people go in to buy a car, they focus more on the monthly payment than they do on the actual interest paid. That same psychology is just wrapping itself into fintech apps. Instead of using hard assets, you're using a credit card as a means for them to extract value. And that value is actually much more is exploits a lot of the psychological trip ups for the most vulnerable populations. And ultimately, we're seeing kind of a reflection of, you know, what we saw in, you know, the 08, 07, 08, you know, great, great recession, in the sense that although it's not major, major financial assets, like a home, you are seeing them, you know, kind of trip their way into, you know, regular products. So for example, if I want to buy a set of skis, I can use some type of buy now, play, pay later product, and I'll be accepted even if I have a 580 FICO score and I get 0% for 12 months. Now replicate that across all their needs and wants, and everything that had once been out of reach is now in reach. But everything that has to do with financial stability and financial awareness of their situation starts to deteriorate, deteriorate because there is no holistic way for them to approach you know, their financial wellness, to have a clear picture on their cash flows, to have a clear picture on what they're actually getting themselves into. Right. So, And to it, a degree, they are preying on people who do not have the financial sophistication to really analyze cash flows and cash flow effects. Yeah, no question. So the, the, the question that I kind of wanted to ask from my end was, so is, is the worry that these, these like BNPLs, like schemes are being... Um, dropped onto people who um or, or let, let me rephrase it this way so is the worry that these like recurring payment formats are being brought onto products where it it shouldn't or is it just the fear that if you give any sort of bnp if you give any product a sort of bnpl payment system that people will eventually default quote unquote on that payment just like they did back in 07 or 08 yeah, I think it's definitely a matter of, it's hard to bifurcate one or the other, but I do think it's both. The first in terms of just the products acts as a gateway. If I want the new Bose sound system, which I recently bought, and I put that on a buy now, pay later, I can pay over 24 months and I'll pay 13% interest and my monthly payment might be $30. I'm like that I can afford. But that mm. acts as a gateway. If I know that I still have cash flow for, I don't know, $150 worth of discretionary expenses, the ease at which I will continue to make purchases using the same manner and the same methodology, using the same psychology, continues to ratchet up. At soon point, you see yourself going down this positive feedback loop that because you have extended time to pay, because you have low interest rates, because you can get the product now and not have immediate cash cash outlays that you're more willing to make that that purchase and those are the things that psychology that feedback loop that reward system where you only have one monthly payment and you don't have to worry about the interest you only worry about the payments is where you start to feel worry because these you know i was in that position i remember being a college student and buy now pay later was right at the cusp and i didn't have cash flow 
and the whole idea that I could go on a trip to Cabo with my buddies on spring break and paid off over 18 months was a steal. I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll pay $78 a month to have my, my week in Cabo with the boys. Mm -hmm. Only to realize that as I went through the rest of that year, I was doing the same thing for other products. It was almost a gateway avenue for them to continue to extract value from me. And when you're preying on the most vulnerable populations, it's more of a question of morality than it is a question of, you know, growing the top line. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause I've, when, when you were talking about that sort of pattern, I, I noticed that it was definitely very prevalent before the, um, before even the pandemic hit or before like people went kind of money crazy, but you know, with normal typical college students and like say streaming subscriptions, like when you had Netflix, Disney plus HBO, all those other things, um, that I, I can see how kind of harmful that is when you reflect that over to people who not only don't have enough to spend with, but don't have the financial literacy to notice that, you know, I am unexpectedly paying this much for just taking away some very necessary money from my paycheck. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the I guess the main question behind that is, um, is, is this just a direct result or product of, um, as he said, Uncle J Pow or Daddy J Pow? <laughs> Do not insult uh, Daddy J Pow. He is responsible for all of the friends. <laughs> no, I, I have benefited from him greatly, so I, I will not. <laughs> money, exactly. money printer continued to go burr for the next decade. Oh, yeah. Ideally. Yeah, right. Indeed. And as I make jokes like that, my master's in finance just like self immolates in shame. <laughs> so here's the thing quality of debtors aside, now, earlier today, we got a reading, an annual inflation reading of 6.2%. And even that, I think, is kind of meh, because if you if you calculate it with the pre-1980 criteria, it's a little higher. But let's say 6.2% consensus. Um, okay, assuming even all the, if, if all the debtors were truly high quality people, okay, if all of them qualified for every financing everywhere, but they still opted for BNPL arrangements for one reason or another, at that rate, doesn't the... I mean, people go into fintech because they think it's lucrative. Don't they kind of question that mindset if inflation is that high and increasing and baseline rates are so low? I mean, you see where the treasury's at? You know what that spread is? Yeah, I mean, your your real rate of return on, on a treasury is it's it's negative. Like you're paying them to, to keep your money unless you have a, an I bond, right? Right. Which is, you know, a minuscule proportion of that market. But right, you can only. I think the max you can buy for an individual investor is like ten thousand dollars, right? And you get your seven percent guaranteed. Right, which I think but reflects. I mean, it it kind of creates this sort of perverse incentive structure for for the startups operating in this space. I mean, it kind of goes back to uh, wait, are we just you know seeing all these decks of all these startups who are straight up buying revenue? Now, this does not apply to every fintech. Obviously, I'm not that jaded. But a few of them seem like they're willing to make the loan in order to just inflate their their North Star metric, which is uh, total outstanding loans, you know, the assets on balance sheet, um, regardless of uh, true economic conditions. Um, and then as a secondary matter, quality of debtors. Um, this is a trend I've seen with a couple decks that have come my way. Um, I try, I had one interview with the founder where we kind of went back and forth on it and I can kind of sort of sense that, you know, she was kind of feeling in a corner because of my questions. So I laid off and want to be that guy, but it, it, it seems like, you know, it's just 
a massive macro factor that VCs have to start thinking about, especially in, in sectors where the debtor specifically is not a high quality debtor, like say payday loan type territory. Yeah, I mean, if in, in a perspective where money is cheap, the ability to cover these, what may become delinquent loans becomes much easier. It's only when the whole economic system starts to unravel. From my perspective, the reason why I will always take advantage of a buy now, pay later product is because of your point. It's 6% inflation, so I'm always assisted on how much my, my dollar is going to be worth 12 months from now when I repay that debt. Like it, it doesn't make sense for me not to do it. Right. But to your point on, you know, increasing the balance sheet, increasing the, the loans on the books, the moment it starts to unravel, if the interest rates still stay low, mm -hmm. they're just going to re-up on the next round of funding. There's too much liquidity in the market to at which point that there are red flags, but we won't see those red flags execute for another 12 months, let's say. I mean, look at what happened when Bear Stearns went under and they had and nothing happened in the markets for another six months. Right. With no look intervention. Was, there's no intervention. Mm -hmm. And the same that we're seeing with Evergrande in China. Right. Right. The whole the whole system there is is deteriorating significantly. And you know, the, the Federal Reserve, you know, warned, I think, over the last week that, you know, we should anticipate some spillover effects in the United States. And yeah. yet markets are still up. We're still reaching new highs. Bitcoin and Ethereum are reaching new highs. You know, we're at that kind of inflection point where the market has yet to react to what's actually occurring on the ground, because mm -hmm. what everyone is seeing, all the headlines, all the herd psychology is that everything is hunky dory and will continue to be that way until mm -hmm. rates start to raise in March of 2022. If they start to raise in March of 2022. If they start to raise, right? <laughs> yeah. They're going to taper off, right? Their asset, their bond buying and whatnot. But until then, yeah, well, you know, there's never been greener pastures. I mean, not not to get too deep into like Fed policy. This is a, a techie podcast, after all. But I mean, th they're stuck in a this kind of uh, it's a it's a tough situation. They're between a rock and a hard place because of these. Um, well, look, if the rates revert to what they were over the longer term, you know, if you look at the last like thirty years of data, of like you know five percent ish, such an enormous portion of the federal government's um, annual budget is going to go to debt service that it would just be. Insane. I mean, they have another thousand different things to fund, including this brand new infrastructure bill, including the defense budget, including um, entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the rest of it, and all the other spending that they got to do. Um, it's just, it's very difficult to imagine them being willing to divert one third of the budget to debt service. So, will it ever really truly come up that way? I don't know. What other tools does the Fed have um, to keep a, a lid on inflation and also not hamper federal finances? Also, I don't know. But okay, again, we're not going to go too deep into that. That's a different <laughs> podcast. But um, you mentioned something I found interesting, which is, you know, in 2008, it was the whole economic system that was at risk. It was systemic. It was widespread, right? Um, with the startups that we're seeing now, I mean, they can either raise debt in and of themselves to pursue a debt finance strategy internally, um, or they can work with what we call a sponsor bank uh, to really make use of their balance sheet, for lack of a better uh, term. So in terms of the balance sheet versus non-balance sheet supported uh, business models, I mean, what are your findings just kind of looking at the fintech deals coming your way over the last you know year or so? 
think there's always an advantage working with a sponsor bank because implicitly that debt can be guaranteed, right? There is this sim symbiotic relationship between the bank and the fintech that if you just use your own balance sheet, you're on the hook. And I think that it creates greater safeguards if you do have a sponsor bank, assuming that there are, you know, very smart people in, you know, the risk and compliance back office who are able to kind of raise red flags and say, hey, we need to reconsider our approaches towards taking on debt and how we're going about the, you know, how we're going about, you know, our ways of business and our business model. That if you don't have that, there are much bigger concerns in the sense that there is, you know, most venture capitalists are not bankers and they don't know how to understand, um, you know, don't know how to understand value at risk. They don't know how to model those components. And so when you have board meetings or you have auditors come in who don't, who don't have that expertise and you don't have the weight of a sponsor bank in their back office to rely on, it's much harder to find credibility in the long-term health of that startup. And so for me, I always try to find, you know, that sponsor bank relationship or at least a roadmap to get there because anything else induces more moral hazard. Because, you know, a, a founder is not on the hook. If, if the delinquency rates go yep. up, that's just part of doing business. But if the delinqu delinquency rates go up and you have a sponsor bank, you know they're going to get a call that day. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, touching on the little point, the, the point specifically of, of looking at a business like that from a VC's perspective. So there's there's... A couple of things that come to mind. First of all, is you said that one of the main things you look for is a team with the expertise, but more importantly, it's the um, so it's the bank relationship. But what what I kind of wanted to ask you about is um, what's a sort of green what's a green flag or some sort of indicator that makes you feel like this business is going to last past when interest rates are going up, whenever that may be. No, that's, that's an excellent question. I think number one is just versatility of the roadmap. Everyone is mm -hmm. taking advantage of the times. You have low interest rates. You have everyone flush with their stimulus checks. You know, people want to spend money. You know, durables and consumer goods are, you know, are going up in price because there's so much demand. That doesn't last forever, right? They're reading the tea leaves and they're taking advantage of that. But when you ask the contrapositive, you know, what happens when the music stops playing? What are your next moves? How are you going to wedge yourself into not just what's available and easy today, but what will exist tomorrow? This is the whole idea of, you know, I want to see what you're trying to become over the next five years. The ability to start a startup and like to start a financial technology company within three to six months and like build a significant book of business is fairly easy compared to what it was five years ago. It's so unimpressive. Oh, you want to issue a debit card? Easy. You want to establish a relationship with a sponsor bank and pay them a lot of money to secure that relationship? Easy. You have the UI designers, designers? Easy. But when you start to talk about, you know, what's your plan for the next decade? What happens when interest rates go up? What happens when FICO scores go down? What happens when your risk tolerance also needs to go down? How do you respond? And the founders who have failed to consider that, that's a red flag. The founders who don't have the proper advisory board, 
who have seen people who have been a part of, you know, the long-term capital management story, who have, you know, been holding the bag at the end of 2001 when the tech bubble crashed. Those are the individuals that I'm like, okay, you are taking a prudent approach to an entirely new environment that we've never seen before. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like a, I, I, so to, to boil it down and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of, again, it, it just falls back on the team. Like the, the, it, it's basically a, has the team taken everything in consideration and do they have the resources to act on all those considerations basically? That's exactly right. 90% of our heuristics is based off of the founder. 10% on the business. You know, a business idea can change, a pivot will take place, and that's expected, and that's the nature of doing business. But if you know someone who is good-hearted and, you know, we'll even do reference checks on family members, right? Like, I want to know what your oh, brother wow. thinks of you, right? Like, Wait, that's what? just like such a... <laughs> what? Hold on. You do reference checks uh, on family members? Yeah. Have you ever asked a founder if they want, you know, you're like, I want references, right? So you, two people you worked with now, two people that you used to work with, who yeah, are supervisors bro, work with like you know i'm a vc i'm not a crazy ex-girlfriend i mean <laughs> like but who like, do you hang around where do you hang out in college <laughs> but that's like <laughs> the real you know, those are the favorite right? yeah <laughs> those are the relationships that you want to you want to assess right because especially you know we're a pre-seed firm so yeah. we are going to have the longest relationship with this founder compared to any other venture firm right so yeah. the Tigers of the world, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, 8BC, whomever, even though they're coming in at the C or Series A round, they mm -hmm. still don't have as long as a relationship as we do. And because our risk profile is so much higher and doubling down on only the founders themselves, where 90% of our decision making is based on the founder, making that extra step to just say, I want to know what your family thinks about you. I want to build that relationship with you that is a key consideration for us did you I'm ever sure, call like, a founder's mom oh no <laughs> okay no, absolutely not when when you do that you're coming back for a whole different episode <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell my war stories <laughs> oh yeah yeah you mentioned something yeah, but... you said it, it was easy to issue cards and get bank support and all that now just because i mean again we've mentioned this in previous episodes which is the mass apiification of fintech in the united states right and also to a degree europe <laughs> Um, but, um, and I don't want to come across as being like, uh, too pessimistic on FinTech, by the way, listeners. Um, but I like to poke holes where I can poke holes. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Um, this, uh, the APIification that's happened in the U S is extremely widespread. And I agree with John Franco a hundred percent, which is it's become so easy to just like very quickly offer checking accounts and cards and, and, and credit and all that. Um, but there are massive differences that I'm seeing in markets because uh, very recently I started looking at um, African fintech. You know, there was Flutterwave and and uh, the one that Stripe funded. I, I forgot the name of the one, Paystack. but Paystack, yeah, Paystack. Yeah. Um, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, Africa fintech is just like soaring, and I, I started to spend a little more time kind of looking at, looking into it. Um, so here here's one thing uh, that's kind of informed my decision making and and my uh, uh, assessments when looking at these decks. So there's a US kind of payday loan competitor. It does not bill itself as a payday loan. It is it is not functionally a payday loan. But what it does is it bridges people um, by sending some money to their checking account once they go 
um, uh, you know, once they go below zero, just so they don't get hit with overdraft fees. And that stops them from going and getting a conventional payday loan, right? Mm -hmm. Now, to me, um, and there are multiple companies who have done this, and I obviously I'm not going to state names, but there was a little bit of a predatory angle to it, which is what got me to step away. Um, on the other hand, I saw a, an African startup recently where what they do to keep people away from predatory loans and from payday loans is uh, they would um, basically uh, turn their salary into something that they earned on a daily basis. So you'd go to an employer, you'd offer them this uh, software stack, and each of your employees would download an app, and then they would see what they earned on a per day basis, and then they can borrow up to 50% of that and have the amount repaid uh, with interest from a future, pay, uh, a future paycheck. Um, now, these are two different models, but they kind of try to tackle the same issue, which is people being a little short on, on cash until their next paycheck. One seemed overtly predatory to me in terms of who they were targeting, and then the other one wanted to be sort of the um, cost-efficient uh, option for people who just needed a little better cash flow, say. Um, the, the African version seemed a lot more, you know, less ethically suspect, I want to say. So I find that there is a very, very thin line between straight up adverse selection, predatory lending, and uh, truly genuinely providing a product that helps people out um, without preying on them financially. And my concern is the easier money gets and the higher the valuations get and the deeper the correlation between higher valuations and more assets on the balance sheet, the more likely people are to stray into the predatory aspects of finance. Do you, do you think that's because people want to go after numbers that back those ridiculously high valuations? Well, I mean, from the founder's perspective, I, I can definitely see why they would want to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's all about incentives, right? People follow incentives. Um, so you can't fault them for chasing a higher valuation. Um, but still, what are you willing to do to get that? John, has that okay, been I, your experience, at least looking at decks that came from the States and from outside of the States? One one thing is that, so we, we strictly view, we strictly look at United States, it's it's tough for me to, to have an opinion or, or an assessment of what's going on outside. One thing that I will say is I, I feel like there's two components. One component that is worth considering is this element of um, of structure. And one structure is like, what is the core issue behind like an overdraft fee? Yeah. So the first the first thing as it relates to um, to that point is structure in the United States. You know, the structure of everyone searching for yield in low interest rates environments forces both companies and investors to do things that they otherwise wouldn't. If you can't get any amount of return on a bond, you're going to look to our turn alternative sources. The amount of influx that we've seen in tech stocks, the amount of influx that we've seen recent, recently in terms of total lock value into crypto. People are looking for yield wherever they can find it. And because of that, that extends towards the businesses themselves. If I can't get a steady return at 3% on some type of buy now, pay later product, I'm going to look for alternative accesses to achieve revenue, whatever that might look like. 
because once you hit series A, B, and C, the metrics start to look significantly different and what you valued on changes. So even though you might've had a wedge early and you might have users, it's all about your ARPU, right? Your average revenue per user. And if you can't hit that, you're gonna start to invoke significantly more uh, adverse practices as you search for that yield, as you search for that source of revenue. Now, the second component is that this isn't, as it relates to the problem of smoothing consumption or reducing the likelihood of a default in the case of an overdraft, one way, one company that we did see that is tackling this is kind of this emergency, uh, emergency savings buffer. For people who are significantly vulnerable to drawing down or not having a $400 emergency savings, whatever it might be, creating an, an emergency savings account benefit within payroll. So whether they have a pension or a 401k, you take some money right off the top and you save that into a completely separate savings account within like a, a mobile app. And that, even though that's not going to be a billion dollar business, but that's the flavor of support that you can create. And so it really is just dependent on how people are thinking about the problems. Some people are thinking about it in terms of yield, and some people are thinking about it in terms of psychology. The people who should always win are the people who are thinking about it in terms of psychology, because that's actually how you're helping people the most. Interesting. So, I think the, so. So the, the the main question is like when when you say psychology, do you imply it's when they think of the core functionality of the business, they're taking into consideration the customers that they're going after like it's it's not necessarily um they're thinking of a product and then they're finding a specific target market to just generate the highest revenue ethics aside like is it is it when they take psychology into consideration um they really need to think about who they're trying to help instead of screw over correct this whole idea of if i were to bet on you know, a founder who had excellent domain fit, like founder expertise or, you know, market expertise and someone who had no expertise, but an insane amount of empathy, I would choose empathy. You know, these design thinking principles, if you can double down on who are you trying to help the most, what, what barrier or what psychology are you trying to overcome? Um, whether it be, you know, inability to track cash flow, inability to understand that picking stocks makes no sense every single time you slice it. That's, that's what I care about. You know, we'll take, for example, like this, one of these robo advisors, right? They took the principles from a random walk down Wall Street, which basically stated that, you know, index funds and passive investing is the most, that's the best way to reduce your risk and maximize your returns. Right. It's taking the whole question of instead of trying to 10x my investments, it's how do I reduce my downside risk as much as possible while maximizing my upside? And if you can do it in such a way where all I have to do is answer like six questions and then I just dollar cost my average dollar cost average my investing in over the course of like 30 years, you've understood my key pain point of not having to do that manually. And companies that mm. do that across every segment of financial technology. That's ultimately what I'm bullish on. This whole idea of how do you help people avoid the own pitfalls of their biases and lack of financial literacy. That's what I care about most. And that's what I think needs to, when I say psychology, I mean, how do you 
make things that are approachable? How do you make things that have ease of access? And how do you make things that provide the foundation for them to build a financial future? And a buy now, right. pay later product is not that. Yeah. I think I, I like that a lot. I like the way you put it specifically because, you know, me being a founder, not necessarily in the fintech space, but in the govtech space, um, I am noticing that in our approach quite a bit. So like one of the main things is that, you know, govtech, you have your whales and then you have all the recent startups that are coming up. And um, what's very interesting about our market specifically, which is like California at the moment, is there's no market leader. So what you find when looking at the psychology of the people who would potentially use the product, um, it's always fixated on something because they've been using a single product for the past decade, decade or two. Um, the product itself has not been updated or touched in the past decade or two. And the the challenge there from the founder's perspective is being able to take their pain points about a product that's basically part of their entire life and daily work and twist that into something, twist that or automate that into something that has genuine value prop, um, not only to where it makes their workflow easier, but we also need to build a specific level of trust where you know, them being risk averse, uh, they feel okay with something so core to their workflow being automated. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this is something that um, a customer of, of like one of these like BNPL companies would do, would, would consider, like I'm, I'm not, you know, it's a bit easier in FinTech because if you hear that you're gonna get paid now, the marketing kind of gets easy and, 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 and the value prop to the customer gets easy, but you know, of course, there's all sort of messed up psychological things happening in the background. Um, but I, I see how, you know, on, on the point you, 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 you pressed on specifically, it was, um, you know, making sure that you're communicating the fact that you're helping them effectively while building the credibility of not trying, not trying to screw them over um, psychologically or like, quote unquote, in the background sort of. Yeah, I, th I think there, you know, we all we all could probably think of examples of companies that do have extractive practices, and then the music stops playing, and right. mm -hmm. they, it, you know, like look at credit card companies and you know the, the Card Act of two thousand nine and all the practices that they had to implement. Look at Wells Fargo and or look at some banks that you know crafted, um, you know, false retail checking accounts because that's how they were incentivized and that right, whole component uh, yeah. of how do you if i could see a founder show me their customer profiles their personas how do they think how do they feel what are their worries what are their wants and even if you were doing that on a b2b play they're significantly better off in terms of creating value over a five to ten year period than someone who's reading the tea leaves for the times mm, right John, what's the best fintech in the country? Right now. <laughs> That's a heavy question. <laughs> um, I'm always gonna double down on, on payments. Um, and the reason being is like, I, I very much subscribe to the idea that you can increase global GDP because the ease in which someone can pay, can pay another person, whether that be through whatever medium, whether it be through a credit card, whether that be through cash, whether it be through a check, if you can make that easier for people, both on a B2B perspective where 51% of transactions still take place through checks 
that take like four days to wow. to clear, four to five days to clear, or it's cross-border payments. All of those considerations, if you can provide more liquidity to the people who need it most in transactions, you unlock significantly more value and significantly more upside for all the participants in the economy. And so if I were to choose between what would I want to bet on today for what will make the most impact on the world from a GDP perspective, from an economic health perspective over the next 10 years, it's payments over, it would be payments over these like unique synthetic structured loans that we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, people take um, the ease of payments for granted, I think, in developed markets because you try to run the same thing in emerging markets. A, you have two, three, two things um, to, to try to overcome. Um, number one, e-commerce in a lot of emerging markets is highly dependent on cash. And the only thing that started to change that user behavior was COVID. Um, and number two, there is a lot of regulatory headwind because payment monopolies generate a ton of money for a lot of people who are close to the government in a lot of countries. Um, so the only thing that we've seen actually be able to, to bake, uh, sorry, break that um, payment cartel was crypto. And I think the rise of stable coins uh, will begin to somewhat, um, you know, reduce the friction in that regard. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot left to, to be done there, but you know, John, I was interested whether um, you'd be willing to define fintech uh, as being inclusive of uh, DeFi and uh, you know, kind of blockchain-based fintech. Yeah, I would say you know it is it is inclusive. The main consideration though is that DeFi and stable coins and all these components tend to assist people who have quote unquote made it, in the sense that. In a lot of cases, they're financially sophisticated, quote unquote, however you want to define that. You know, they have liquidity or they've made money in crypto and all of these products just ratchet up their ability to make even more money. Do I think that, you know, crypto and decentralized finance are helping, you know, someone who just entered the United States as an immigrant and you know, is trying to convert their money into U.S. dollars and have their ability to pay and, you know, have their their payments not be tracked by the government or through some type of centralized authority. No, it has not reached that point. And I think we're, as with most things, you know, innovation always takes place at the at the top end of the uh, at the top end of the funnel. The people who are most open to technology adoption, who have the resources to make those risks. And I think we have a significantly longer way to go until we see a convergence between this idea of empathy-driven fintech and what's going on in decentralized finance. Everything is just financial engineering of toolkits and products that serve institutional and high net worth in investors, whether that be yield farming, whether that be synthetic loans, whether that be derivatives, right. like that's not what people need, at right. least in terms of the theme of how do we help the most vulnerable populations um, in our backyard? I think what helped the vulnerable populations with respect to crypto over the last few years was that crypto was never defined as being accessible only to accredited investors. Uh, <laughs> and, right. and because had that occurred, I think the disparity in wealth would be would have been just driven even more into the extremes. Um, but the the one thing that transpired, at least over the last year or so, is that the average non-accredited investor consumer 
has become fairly convinced of the revolutionary power of holding a DeFi-based asset. Um, seeing that participation in, in a network can make you an owner of fintech and not a product of fintech, um, or simply like a data contributor to a fintech uh, network controlled by someone else, um, the narrative has shifted. And I think, at least it's my personal thesis, that things are going to move more towards the blockchain bit because um, borrowers and lenders are going to want to own a piece of the system that they're helping run with their own money. Right. And I think that that's like zooming out on that point specifically. I think the the number one thing that we kind of noticed during the pandemic was um, just like you said, Aziz, every single barrier specifically, um, whether it was to asset to just typical like shares, normal stock, whether it was startup investing, DeFi, like investing in cryptocurrencies. Um, over the course of the past 18 months, I want to say all those the barriers of entry to all of those different um, areas or gates at least just decreased or like went down um, a ridiculous amount. So you have, and, and I think, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors, mo mostly being, you know, 20 something year olds living in their parents' house. Um, and all of a sudden they have a fresh like 2,600 or like $2,000 in their pockets. Of course they're gonna spend it on, you know, risky stuff. But what that translated to was, Robinhood having uh, 13 million new signups in the first half of 2020 or 2021, and then Coinbase going crazy, and all those different um, every single like individual community, and you know, putting this from a Twitter perspective, like my timeline has been basically blowing up with people who I've never seen talking about tech at all. All of a sudden, talking about crypto web three looking at it from a micro perspective about the specific coins or macro perspective with what that what that's going to do in terms of um you know the future of just any transaction um it's it's i think it's it's good because it's going to introduce a lot of noise to whatever system exists and that's you know as you and i talked about it last episode about creative destruction but Right. What I'd be what I'd be very curious about is like now that the barrier of entry is low and you have a lot of players in the game, um, if you want to offer a service or if you want to offer something else to where, you know, to to John Frank John John's point, um, everything is provided or everything is simple. So I'd be very curious to see what a founder can do to stick out a lot, not only to investors but to customers as well. Well, let's see what happens to Web3. See, this this always happens. We have a podcast that has nothing to do with Web3, and then slowly we just kind of snowball into crypto. Yeah, yeah. We have to wear shock collars that like buzz us every time we say HODL or Moon. <laughs> crypto is eating the world. I mean, that's that's the only thing that, that people care about these days. And uh, to, your, to your point, though, I know that... Uh, we're getting close on time, but to your point, um, at a discussion with someone yesterday, and their point was that with this, what COVID provided in terms of just raw breeding ground for this foray into fintech and to investing, is that all this disposable income that would have went to entertainment, whether it's going out to bars, whether it's going out to restaurants, was no longer useful. And because right. you know where could you go? You were locked up. And so the entertainment money, which is a significant portion of people's paycheck, you know, even in even in Africa, you'd be, you know, when you give someone, you know, a, a per diem, none of that, not all of that goes to food. 
a large portion will mm -hmm. go to entertainment. So in the current sense, the entertainment money then became investing money. And people viewed it as entertainment money, though in an investment platform. And so the psychology of people being more open to these ideas is powerful. But the same effects that we're seeing today in terms of investor psychology being a number one issue, in terms of not understanding you know, what financial engineering means and what are the, the second order effects of the products that they're using, I think still remains one of the biggest concerns, at least from a personal finance and personal literacy perspective. My end goal through fintech is just financial wellness for each participant who wants it. And I don't think we're there. And I don't think that even with the macro trends we're seeing and people pushing into crypto are going to get us there. Yeah. John, I got to ask, from your investment experience, what is the one that got away? I mean, I have a, I have a few mm -hmm. anti-portfolios uh, that we can talk Ooh, about if you want. Do tell. <laughs> so uh, we, were, we had the opportunity to invest pre-seed and seed again into Robinhood, and we passed. Oh, oh. <laughs> and it's because we couldn't get comfortable with one of the co-founders. Like we just oh, didn't think that they could, you could probably guess which one, but we didn't yeah. think that they were the right person for, for the job. Um, naturally you're wrong. Uh, the second one. No, John, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it never came to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I have two more that are all going to hurt you as much as they hurt me today. Airbnb. Oh, <laughs> because who th who would want to stay in someone else's couch like that? I mean, we're, we're granted you're seeing it at the pre-seed and the seed, right? So there was no th robust inventory from which to draw on. And then yeah. the third component, third one was open seed. And wow. you know, to to be frank, this was 2017. So. Did anyone know that NFTs were going to be such a big deal and create and require a huge platform for people to engage with? Like, crypto wasn't our focus until this summer, so that's kind of on us. But John, I'm gonna to, I, I'm gonna DM you the crisis hotline number. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see that though. I mean, all, all the three that you mentioned seem like insane ideas at the pre-seed stage. So I I kind of see it. I. Can't can't give you too much hate for that, to be honest. Yeah, it's also tough because it's you know ninety percent is the founder, mm. right, and ten percent is the That's idea, true. right? Right. So that heuristic has played very very well for us in significantly other in a significant amount of other occurrences, but for those three, it didn't. And if you choose to remain consistent in your approach, you'll probably have significantly better outcomes. And so while, you know, sure, those didn't work out well for us, we have many others that have. So that's just kind of like the, the way the wind blows sometimes. Yeah. Are there any more tearjerkers or is that it? Uh, that is, oh. that is, uh, those are, I want to say there's like two or three more, but I'd have to look at the, I don't, I don't often look at my anti-portfolio for reasons relating <laughs> Good to reasons. mental health. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I usually just look at my TDPI and you know my 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 multiples on investment. Yeah, I can give you our mm -hmm. best investment if that one's exciting. Sure, oh, I'd be very curious. So we were preceded in Wish and got a two hundred and twenty x return. Beautiful! Wow. 
So not, not, a, not a bad deal for a day's work. Um, source graph, I think, is like 150x. Monthly is 110x. Um, so out of the 100 investments, I think 11 of them are unicorns or one round away from becoming unicorns. So basically Beautiful. right in line with power law. Yeah, I know. I know somebody actually who. I mean, this wasn't this wasn't a startup deal, but he was in on Multicoin, and they kind of went all in on Solana. Um, last I spoke to him, the mark was at one hundred and five x on the fund. <laughs> Jesus, Qu quadruple digit IRRs, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it, like the the one investor that's better than JPOW. <laughs> True, and and uh, and Nancy combined. Oh, I'm loving those memes of just her on the phone going like, drop this, buy more of that. Nancy Pelosi is the greatest hedge fund manager of all time. <laughs> we actually have a special guest on the show. Nancy, are you there? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> That's funny. She's, she's the, um, he's the manager of Capital Capital. Ooh, that, oh, man, that would be good. That was good. Great, that it? was clever. It took me a Yo, second there. Go, it's a golf go, tech joke. Finally brought GovTech back into this. <laughs> uh, dude, go buy the uh, uh, go go buy the uh, domain before this airs. Oh, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, John, always a pleasure having you on. Absolutely, yeah. thank you so much for uh, for the banter and the uh, the conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. Yo, Indeed, when, when yeah, when you when you pass on something else that's as uh, monumentally important uh, to the world of VC as Airbnb, we're going to have you back on. Oh, please do. Please do. I'd love to uh to get kicked while I'm down. That's my It'll be great. Yeah, we'll have a we'll have a counselor and Kleenex and everything. <laughs> All right. Well, if you don't mind, I got a mountain of decks to get to. So peace. Absolutely. Awesome. Pleasure. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day and awesome for uh letting me let me chat a bit and engage with you guys it was, it was great for sure man for sure you too it's awesome all right later <laughs> <laughs>